Welcome to the Wellness Law Podcast, where wellness and the law meet for contemplation and collaboration. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Health and Wellness Law. I am your host, Barbara Zabawa. Well, welcome, Dr. Thomas Lewis. Uh, to the Wellness Law Podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled that you're here to talk to us and share your expertise on, uh, well, lab results and corporate wellness. I mean, you have expertise in so many things. Everyone, I want you to meet Dr. Thomas Lewis. He is the author of six books, uh, and he is a medical scientist with PhD in chemistry from MIT, And he's also uh, a graduate of Harvard School of Public Health and Toxicology and Nutrition. So very, very uh, educated and smart and I'm anxious to talk to him. He specializes in looking at the root causes of illness. And um, he has his own business called Health Revival Partners. They deal with corporate wellness, they offer consulting, and he's also working to establish a parallel uh, health system that focuses on chronic illnesses, which for anyone who really looks into our healthcare system, we know that the current healthcare system really is just focused primarily on acute care and not chronic. And so Dr. Lewis is trying to fix that problem. So welcome, Dr. Lewis, to the Wellness Law Podcast. Well, thanks very much. And I know I have some uh, impressive credentials, but I always tell people, they often ask me, how do you spell that word? And I say, don't ask me. I went to MIT. I don't know how to spell a word. There's no English majors there. Ask me a math question. <laughs> we all have uh, our special, we all have our narrow range of intelligences. Yes. Well, we could talk about us just a wide swath of topics, but I think you and I agreed that we were going to today focus on corporate wellness programs and the tying of incentives to lab measures like BMI, mm-hmm. uh, because I just finished writing an article that will be published later this year on the racial discrimination behind use of BMI in corporate wellness programs. And so I thought this was a fitting topic. And so I want to ask you from your perspective as a a scientist, as a uh, thought leader in this area, what do you see as a problem with having corporate wellness programs tie financial incentives to achieving a certain BMI? You know, I think financial incentives are appropriate catalyst to get people to move in a healthier direction. But in our corporate wellness program, which uses standard of care, you know, as you referred to, as we started talking before recording, the sick care system is completely wrong because the values they're using and the interpretation of same are wrong. You know, so if you're trying to move into a range that they consider right, but it's actually wrong, you're getting worse and they're incentivizing you to get worse. So that's a, that's a big problem. So as we are discussing BMI, so Malcolm Kendrick's a famous cardiologist from, I think, Scotland, wrote a book called Doctoring Data. And what he showed is actually overweight and obese is, a, is a less of a risk factor than being underweight, which people don't appreciate. But, but here's the thing. Being overweight, there are many reasons why people might be overweight. And so you put them into a generic class, one size fits all, which is completely inaccurate. You know, the most important thing 
is do we have great repair mechanisms to keep us healthy? You know, when you when you exercise hard, and let's say you haven't done a curl in a long time, and you curl that weight, and the next day your your muscles in pain, you have broken down tissue and you're rebuilding it. Do you have the the nutrients and the processes and the enzymes to rebuild that tissue appropriately? The most classic example of things that are that are curling a weight all day long are your brain and your eyes. That's why you sleep for them to recover. So you can have two people that appear obese or very, have a very high BMI, but one has really good micronutrient, minerals, enzymes, things of that, phytonutrient status, and another person has poor status, okay? So, and we're treating them both the same, but they're completely different. One's repairing very well, will live a long, healthy life. The other one's very likely to deteriorate into diabetes, uh, heart disease, cancer, uh, dementia, all these other things. So we really need to add some, you know, my stick is proper labs, the breadth and depth of labs and proper interpretation of labs. So in my opinion, I call the fasting insulin. See, what they say is someone who's overweight is probably insulin resistant. So they measure glucose. Is glucose insulin? No. If you want to measure if someone's insulin resistant, measure insulin. It costs no more than glucose. And mm. so I have these two high BMI people, okay? And I measure a $3 fasting insulin test. And one is, say, less than 10, and another one's over 50. The one with a 50 is in malnutrition, malnutrition, micronutrient deficiency. They will have more problems downstream because they're not repairing and recovering and rebuilding like the other one. But why why should this person who happens to be whatever reason, overeat or whatever, to, to have excess weight, but they eat well and they digest well? You know, you are not what you eat. You are what you absorb. So gut is probably the most important thing. Why should that person be penalized? Right. And, and you know, the other person shouldn't be penalized either. They should be coached into a, 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 an understanding. But just saying, look, Chub Chub, you need to lose weight. That doesn't, you know, I were, I ran a program, a corporate program, and there was this, there was this nutrition program that ran alongside me. And they were doing strictly calorie reduction, calorie reduction. And what I showed is the people that overlapped in my program and this weight loss program, the one that were starting out the sickest got sicker on calorie reduction. So they were losing weight. Great. Let's incentivize them. But they were getting sicker. Why? Because they didn't change their diet. They just, they just decreased how much they were taking in. So yeah. when you increase what you're taking in, you're getting in even fewer micronutrients, nutrients. So when you think about it and dissect it, that's what I do as a scientist. It all makes complete sense. Yet those people that were losing weight, whether they were, their labs were getting worse or not, we're all getting bonused for the right, <laughs> even though some were getting sicker. And the ones who were getting sicker were the ones that were the sickest already. So they're the ones heading to high cost, high disease, high morbidity, high mortality, high poor health status. Wow. That's 
that's usually just a testament to something else that I, I point out in my article is that the law for corporate wellness programs, which is found in two primary areas, the HIPAA incentive rules um, or Affordable, Affordable Care Act and wellness incentive rules and the Americans with Disabilities Act um, rules that allow for voluntary wellness programs, both of those laws, uh, or I should maybe say neither of those laws, federal laws, require evidence-based wellness programs. No. That is not a requirement for corporate wellness programs. They do not need to be evidence-based. They need to be reasonably designed to promote health mm-hmm. and prevent disease. But that does not mean it needs to be an evidence-based program. And reasonable design is a very loose phrase. I mean, you can argue all day long that something's reasonable and you know it's going to be hard to refute uh, if there's any chance of having any anyone get health improvement um so uh that that's really interesting that you know yeah your work is more science-based but that's not something that's legally required by corporate wellness well here's the problem though if they introduce the evidence-based system based on standard of care. It's not an evidence-based system. I wrote this whole article on how the Achilles heel of the standard of care is actually their evidence because when you challenge it, you see it's very fraudulent when you look at very important large studies. And I'll give you an example. So the the total cholesterol, if your total cholesterol is above 200, they're going to put you on a statin drug. Now you already have a high BMI. Uh, there are many, many studies from Harvard, Women's Health Initiative, large studies that show that statin drugs lower LDL, and LDL transports fats through your bloodstream to repair tissue. Every every membrane is a phospholipid or phosphofat bilayer. You need to get those fats there. When you lower LDL, you will reduce the amount of fats in circulation. And you become more dependent on sugar as a fuel. You can't burn fat can't lose weight as easily. So actually, statin drugs increase diabetes. And in general, they will increase BMI. Okay. But you're complying with so-called evidence. But what I do is I look at society. So for example, the Koreans have probably the best health system in, in the world. They are somewhat people might argue argue Singapore, but they're they're way better than the United States. And they have a national system, they measure people very accurately. And they published a paper in Nature in 2019 that looked at 12.8 million members of society. And they showed that the lowest incident of early mortality risk, cardiovascular disease, cancer, et cetera, was a total cholesterol number of around 230. There's variation because your HDL and LDL numbers will vary. So some people were better at 200. Some people were actually better at 265. But seeing these wellness programs in the evidence-based ones, they want you to be around 160. And that is a devastating place to be. And oftentimes you can't get there without treatment. Mm. And I use the word treatment loosely. Why why do you need enough? You know, I don't I wasn't born with a statin deficiency. So like if my lipids are at this level, that's probably where they should be. And now we're pushing them down there. Now, when people are sick, their lipids go up higher. Why? Because the LDL that in- increases most dramatically in the total cholesterol calculation is a taxi cab that brings fats through the through the water-based circulatory system. Think about 
salad dressing, oil and water don't mix. So how do we get oil, fats, lipids to tissue? Every cell membrane is a fat bilayer, okay? And if you don't have those fats, you do not repair. So LD, you know, having a, a low LDL uh, artificially, very detrimental to longevity, health, repair, and recovery. And if your lipids are high, you don't want to lower them. It's because you have a process where you need more and efficient rebuilding of your tissue. Hmm. So I don't touch the lipids and the interpretation of them by every doctor, every cardiologist in this nation is completely wrong. <laughs> and, you know, 60% of us have at least one chronic condition. So, and statins have been around since 1987. How's that works out? Yeah. You look at simple data, not, not listening to your doctor. And, you know, I, I just published 26 blogs on statins and, and cholesterol and the, the organization that said statins do not prolong life is Harvard Medical School in their own internal publication. Wow. Wow. So uh, how would you fix the corporate wellness system? I mean, are you, uh, what are your thoughts about, you, you help corporate wellness programs, like how, if you could help them um, be more effective, um, what would you do? Right. So I'll just give you one story. I have a um, a really good uh, corporate wellness client up in Bloomington, Indiana. And the reason why it's working so well is because the CEO hired me. I've never been referred by a broker because I upset the apple cart and they're afraid about losing their commission. But this program, it's a, it's a uh, demolition company and half their employees are on the road um, three weeks out of the month. Okay. And I've been there seven years. And in the last seven years, they have not had one healthcare premium increase, not one. Wow. And so what we do is an evidence-based system. We do a detailed survey, boring as hell, but a survey, a health survey, like an intake form at your doctor's office tells us why. Okay. Labs tell you what and to what degree. So labs are objective and tell you what's going on. But the survey not a finger stick for glucose, not, you know, if someone has high BMI, that's what we want to know why. And so like in our survey, if I look at their nutritional profile and they're, they're not afraid of fats and they eat, they eat decently, they're fine. Okay. So that's part one, the survey. So it's, it's boring as heck surveys, what's going on in your life, what's going on with your health. Most important thing. Now, people might lie on the survey, but that's why I tell them, try not to lie in your survey because we're going to run labs as well and your blood doesn't lie. Mm -hmm. So then what we do is a very inexpensive panel. Yes, we look at glucose, A1C, but we're looking at other markers like inflammation, C-reactive protein, very inexpensive. White blood cell counts, your innate immunity. That's, that's an objective measure. When the white blood cells are up, you have some sort of inflammatory infectious process going on that we need to need to fix. And then we look at things like, so the erythrocyte sedimentation rate, almost no doctor runs it anymore. But the ESR, which is just how fast red blood cells settle, another $2 test is probably the single most important marker you can run because it measures the electricity in your body and we're all electrical. I'm not talking because the muscles are moving. I'm talking because electrical signal is causing the muscles to move. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so our entire 
nutrition, digestion, all that stuff is designed to fuel the mitochondria to produce ATP. It's all an electrical process. So the SED rate measures that accurately. Almost no one does that. And then what I mentioned earlier, fasting insulin. I call fasting insulin a marker of malnutrition. If your insulin is high, you're malnourished. If your insulin is low, you're not. If your BMI is high and your insulin is high, problem. Mm -hmm. That is incentivized to make dramatic changes. But if your BMI is high and your insulin is low, you're probably going to be pretty healthy. I mean, how many offensive linemen in the NFL are unhealthy? Mm -hmm. They probably, a lot of them, you know, they're muscular, but they also carry a lot of weight for that momentum so they can push. Well, I always talk about... Patrick, I'm not Patrick, Arnold Schwarzenegger as, you know, he, when he was in his prime, you know, Mr. Universe or whatever, he was, had a very high BMI, but you know, he was, it was mostly muscle universe. (laughs) So, um, yeah. Uh, so, so what I'm hearing you say is more evidence-based measures for corporate wellness programs, not, and why do you think corporate wellness currently doesn't use more evidence-based measures in combination like you're describing what what what's the reason behind that they think they are and the standard of care has their so-called evidence-based standard doctrine but you know when you look at 100 years ago 12 percent of our population had a chronic condition now 60 percent do how is this we have to like we, we we can't you know the definition of insanity is keep doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same results, but you know, we'll uh, uh, we'll just try it another for another generation. We just have to realize that these measurements these measurements are wrong. So the the breadth of markers that they're running in corporate wellness that just stuck on A one C and glucose and the lipids lipids are completely misinterpreted. Glucose is okay, but it doesn't tell the real story. You need to run. It's all about insulin resistance, so we need to run the insulin test. People run these glucose monitors continuous. I tell them to throw them away because, you know, in the morning, your glucose may be up because you're waking up, cortisol goes up, puts you into an early, a, a mild fight or flight to get you going. Glucose is going to go up. There's So like as long as your hormone insulin is regulating your glucose and it's not very high, then things are under control. Hmm. Should, can, we, can we further optimize that person with say a glucose of 105 or 110 and insulin of, of 10. Yeah, we can optimize that. But that's not a, a situation where the person is, you know, soon to have some sort of bad event from diabetes or something like that. We really need to focus on the people, you know, 5% drive 60% of costs. So I want to see someone with a glucose of 160 and an, a fasting insulin of 40. And those are people that that we really need to focus on and not penalize people that are kind of in the middle or, or, or actually on a really healthy range. So, you know, it, it, one size fits all. What we do is personalize and precision medicine. And so we, the only way you can do that is to interpret labs really from a high risk perspective, which means we have to amplify that signal and just view that. And we have to look at a variety of labs to tell a story. You know, if if you and I are chatting and I've, I've gotten to know you pretty well in a short amount of time, but when I first, when we first emailed, we didn't even know how we got connected. Okay. That's like running a glucose test. Mm-hmm. As we go further and further along, I'm getting to understand you a lot better. And it's, and, and, and like in, in health, the only way I can get there is by 
measuring more and more, you know, more and more. But a lot of these labs are very inexpensive. You know, the panel I run is is 57 biomarkers that cost $60. Mm -hmm. I, I claim that I can run a $10 panel of, of fasting insulin, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, and a complete blood count with differential cost $10 and pretty much out predict any any traditional doctor that it's running your lipids, your A1C and um, and triglycerides. So how would you rewrite the law then? Like let's just take uh, the Affordable Care Act where right now there's an absence of language that requires evidence-based uh, wellness programs, wellness activities. Um, would would inserting the words evidence-based into that law be enough um, or would you need more um, to change the law so that more programs were doing appropriate screenings to actually help employees improve their health? Well, it, it's a start to get the word evidence-based in there, but the standard of care evidence is pretty weak. Mm-hmm. My, my original business partner before I really got into health was um, trained at Procter & Gamble. And they built, they they were the, the gurus at what's called pull-through marketing. And so I think the, the most important thing, Barbara, is to educate populations, CFOs, uh, um, you know, HR people that are involved in health programs to understand. Because, you know, they're at the, they're at the mercy of the healthcare system. And the largest single cost, other than the um, you know paycheck for employees, is is the healthcare cost, and it's a it's a big drain, a big financial drain on businesses. It affects raises, it affects bonuses, you know, it affects how many people they hire. You know, it affects employment in such a profound way. This cost, so really, we need to be we need to be working with folks that uh, that on an educational basis. And what I'm working on with these. Um, these brokers and uh, private employment organizations and things like that that can work with smaller companies, single employee companies, companies that otherwise could not self-fund their healthcare. This is the place to start organically to get working with these folks and build plans and then you know work with, but we have to educate the employers and the employees that there's a better way to go. The interesting thing about self-funded is they don't have to conform with standard of care so much or like the like the health plans on the exchange. They can actually build their own health plan. So they can design a wellness program that is very strongly evidence-based and robust mm-hmm. if they work with the right people to build these plans. So I think the legislation, you know, we're, we're talking about the second largest corrupted industry in the world, healthcare. Uh, the, the number one is the U.S. government. <laughs> um, we really look at what's going on with the, the health and freedom of our, our citizens. So you're going to have a hard time cracking that nut. But see, I'm dedicating the rest of my life to this. And hopefully you do, too, because I think, you know, seeing what lawyers like Aaron Siri and others are doing to help um, make people aware and, and create lawsuits against health freedom lost and whatnot are very important. So we all have to play our little role. And this is something we're not going to turn the Titanic very quickly, unfortunately. Oh, no, no. But um, but the incremental changes, um, you know, I think are are important and um, what what we can try to do. Um, so, well, I, uh, 
I said at the beginning, we could talk about so many things and, um, I knew this was going to go by very quickly and I think we'll probably have to schedule another podcast with you to pick up on some of the other things you, you mentioned, but if people want to learn more about your work, uh, how can they do that? Like, do you have a website that they can visit? Website is health revival partners with an S.com. And, you know, we, we publish, uh, blogs almost every day. I'm not really big into social media. So it's just it's just from our website. And we do weekly webinars. We do two two webinars a week. So I had uh, uh, this interventional radiologist and regenerative medicine specialist on Monday at noon. And then um, tonight at 8 p.m. I have a uh, U.S.-based but Russian-trained, uh, Chinese medicine-trained, German medicine-trained, U.S. medicine-trained uh, functional doctor, MD, PhD, Dr. Mikhail Artemanov talking about, um, you know, what he's doing in, in the pain and, and regenerative medicine space. So we're providing content all the time. Um, once again, I, I probably hurt my business by not using, using social media. We might look at X now, I'm not sure, but, uh, so we just, you know, we're, we're doing what we're doing and we're trying to build a new system behind the scenes. That makes sense. Well, I, I'm so glad that you're invested in this work and I will definitely put in the link to the podcast, the link to your uh, website, healthrevivalpartners.com. Thank you. Likewise. Good serendipity here today. Thank you for listening to the Wellness Law Podcast. You can find more Wellness Law resources by visiting the Center for Health and Wellness Law website at www.wellnesslaw.com, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on social media. Until the next episode, stay well, stay hopeful, and stay legal.